Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, a man looks for answers around his sister's 1987 disappearance. How far will he go to prove his parents killed her and covered up? We'll discuss Burden of Proof on HBO. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. So love of my life has been taken out because <laughs> Rebecca is mad at me because she reads the script like Ron Burgundy. <laughs> and if something's gone... Or something's there not supposed to be there. It's <laughs> fuck yourself, San Diego. <laughs> You're our love of my life, Kevin. Yeah, all right. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of The Final Curtain, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Good evening, Rebecca. And finally, our captain of all things cynical, the author of the City Trilogy, host of Strange Arrivals, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. All right. So, Kevin, this is obviously Monday's podcast. Obviously, obviously yes. To everyone who's listening on Monday. Uh, what is coming up on Thursday's show? On Thursday, we're going to be talking about the Lemonada podcast, Blind Plea. Okay. So, I guess, should we just get into it or do you want to chit-chat about something, Kevin? No, we should discuss. All right. Let's discuss. <laughs> let's get into this documentary. Let's just play that first clip. Leading off. I guess empathetic is the right word. She's always nice to people who didn't fit in. I always thought she was spoiled rotten. Kind of quiet. She was out going to carefree. She was just needy. Her disposition was like most 15-year-olds. In 1987, Jennifer Pandos vanished from her Virginia home after an argument with her father. Her mother discovered a suspicious note from someone claiming Jennifer had willingly left with her, although she never returned. In 2014, I reached out to an attorney in Williamsburg about whether I could sue my parents uh, for uh, the death of my sister. After odd behavior, flunked polygraphs, and accusatory handwriting analysis, Stephen Pandos believed his parents were involved in her disappearance and had covered up the crime for years. But his mother insisted she knew nothing and now only wants her son back in her life. I don't know how long it's been since I've seen him. 
I really don't remember. Oh well. Eight years in the making, the HBO series Burden of Proof follows Stephen's journey to solve his sister's cold case by getting his parents to confess. With a team of cops, private eyes, and other experts in tow, can the answers to Jennifer's disappearance be found in his family or somewhere else? Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about very big spoilers from Burden of Proof. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. So Toby, if someone wants a fast paced documentary, this may not be the documentary for that person, right? Or you got to play it at like double speed or something. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very, it's kind of languid. You know, in addition to people just kind of talking slowly, there's a lot of walking around, staring into space, driving from here to there. Conversations are slow. It's, everything is is very slow. And it, it's not like I like this documentary, but Same. the pacing does take some getting used to. And especially, uh, and I know we'll get to the spoiler later, but until you get to like sort of this big moment, you may be wondering, why am I watching? Because- there's like a few moments of like pretty compelling tape, but you're not getting a whole lot for the amount of time that you're putting into it. That seems sort of out of the ordinary. And I'll just say one more thing. I realize I'm kind of going on, but the very beginning is like even slower than the rest of it, where they have this weird thing where they have the narrator will say, and then he said, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then they have an actor in a recreation who then immediately says the exact same thing that the narrator said he's, they said, so it's just like, it makes it doubly slow. Hmm. And I think to piggyback on that, Toby, for me, I felt sort of like exhausted by the case and the pace at the end of this, but that's how the people that are involved with this feel. So in a way, it sort of had sort of this side effect of making me uh, get into that same mindset of just exhaustion at this case that's been going on. So they were doing this for what, eight years he's been taping? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Kevin- this was obviously in the works for a long time. Yeah. As an unclear to me, did Stephen commission this film or was he just a subject of this film and it went on forever? Is that I, ever clear? It's not clear. I I, I mean, I would be, I, I'm doubtful that he, you know, paid a bunch of filmmakers to follow him along on Same. this. He may have approached them and said, this is what I'm doing. But uh, this is actually one time where I really would love to talk with the director. Same. And just find out like how you got involved and like, so, you know, what did you do for all 2021? Or, you know, I would really like to know more about that. It reminds me of what's that film with like Ethan Hawke and whatever. Where Boyhood? Just, yeah, where yeah. it just like goes on forever. But you describe it in your notes as a verb film. What did you mean by that? Well, it's verb film. It's not a noun film. It's like we're talking, we're seeing action. We're following this as it goes on. A noun film would be where we're just talking about the thing that happened, right? We were just showing, uh, you know, recapping the story. We are following along Stephen and these filmmakers as they try to go through the evidence and deal with his parents and see if they can get them to open up about what actually happened the night that Jennifer disappeared. And I am really impressed that they stuck with this. The filmmakers stuck with this for eight years or so because they really could have pulled out at any time and said, OK, here's our ending. But they knew enough to stay with it until they had something real that they could finish on. So my question is, is this film around about what happened to Jennifer or about what Steven thinks happened to Jennifer? In my opinion, this film is about Steven and mm -hmm. not about Jennifer. Laura, what do you think? 
Yeah, I, I think it's actually about family dynamics. And in this case, the family dynamics have led Stephen to become so connected and fixated on this theory of the case that he has because he was off at school when this happened. His parents didn't really share information. And there are some things that are very questionable when you hear about this case, some of the details. But I think it's about sort of this family situation. And because of his own unresolved childhood trauma, he is not able to get out of this lane that he's on of what he feels like he needs to prove happened in this case to find resolution. So it's really about Stephen's journey, but it's Stephen's journey is really about this bigger picture of the family trauma in this family with the dad who's got his issues, with the mom who, you know, is is pretty, I think, meek in following whatever the dad is telling her to do. And now, you know, later in life, this dynamic between Stephen and his mother and whether or not he should allow her back into his life and to meet her grandchildren and to have a role in their life. So, and he even said like, whatever happened to Jennifer was a a way for me to perhaps exercise a lot of anger toward my father about growing up. So he's kind of conflating these, these issues together. And, and I think to some degree that sort of takes them away from being able to go down lines of inquiry where there might've been some other things going on in this case. That being said, Laura, I'm going to stay with you for a second. I think the documentary does a good job of putting us in the mindset of somebody who is 100% sure his parents are guilty. So mm-hmm. they sort of convince the audience for a moment there, or longer than a moment because it's very slow, that the parents are probably guilty. And when you're in that lens, yes or no, you can be convinced that the parents' behavior, and especially like the mother, for instance, when she's brought in for that questioning, through that lens, They can be perceived as guilty as hell, right? Which, by the way, I think is a very important lesson for for an audience like us to learn. Well, exactly. Because if you look in this, it's kind of like a trap that you can fall into. There's some stuff that seems pretty sketchy that seems like it doesn't add up. When one of the friends calls the house, the mom is like making excuses as to why Jennifer is not there, that she's like sick or she's with her dad or whatever. Doesn't tell one of the sisters, like the aunts for like, a month that you allegedly. Know, miss, allegedly that she's missing. And then on the dad's side of the family, there's people who say they didn't learn for years that something happened. But then you also have like your first thing that hits you is why didn't they immediately contact the police? Why did they react so uh, nonchalant isn't the word, but they didn't like panic when they get this note. They didn't go to the police. They're just like, yeah, okay. So you're like, okay, something's going on. Well, people react differently to traumatic situations. And that's something we've talked a lot in this podcast that we can't stereotype based on one reaction because that might not necessarily indicate guilt or innocence. It might be that this person's own personal situation that's making them react that way. But, you know, it just goes on and on. And then you have the stuff where the parents end up having parts of the case file. Like, oh, now we have the dental records. Oh, now we have the note. Like, why don't the police have that? How did the parents? So there's a lot of stuff that just seems super fucking sketchy. But they are pretty sus, right? I mean, when you yeah. look at it, they, and they are all the way, th- I would say all the way through. Well, the father had, a, you know, some sus stuff. And, and the mom, you know, basically said, well, if my husband hid the body and if, you know, I mean, she said that yeah. in the police interrogation. There's definitely enough circumstantial stuff there for an audience 
to go, oh, I don't know. So, I mean, I think for a lot of us, as we are watching, we kind of believe Stephen, at least to the extent, like, we have to examine this. And a lot of it just seems to be trying to decide, how can Stephen get mom to tell the truth? How can we, will dad confess? What is the thing that dad said while he was in jail? What the hell with this letter? You know, all, all this stuff. I think that from a viewer's point of view, we're definitely trying to get to buy into what Stephen believes because, and this is why Stephen believes it. There's a lot of suspicious stuff, right? But in the end, that's really not important. It doesn't help that all of the mother's sisters believe that Everybody yeah. believes it. Yeah. The cops believe it. Yeah. All their all their relatives believe it. Yeah. Well, everybody does. Do the cops believe it? That ends up being the key to the whole thing. They believe the cops believe it, which is why they believe it. We'll get into that. We'll get into that. that. One female cop in the beginning, though, in that interrogation video, she was like pointing it. her finger, and she is going after mom. I didn't write the note. I didn't leave it in her room. I didn't help Ron remove the body from the house. Okay. I didn't so, help. So Ron removed the body from the house. If he did, I didn't help him. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the interesting thing about the interrogation video, right? Is that the first time you see it, you're like, wow, she is being totally obstinate. And then the second time you see it at the end, it's like, oh, man, <laughs> like this is brutal given right. what the reality is. Right. So talk about the presence of the camera, Toby, because we have to remember there are filmmakers here during conversations, <laughs> these very intimate conversations, right, that, you know, Stephen's having with his relatives that Stephen's having with his mother. I mean, I, I just kept thinking, like, Stephen hasn't talked to his father for years. He hasn't talked to his mother for years. And he's now having these conversations with them with filmmakers present. Right. These are not genuine. I mean, they are authentic, but they're not authentic at the same time. Right. Yeah. So I, I kind of had like a little journey about the uh, a mental journey about the use of the camera, because my first thing was when I started watching, I was like trying to picture myself in like a similar situation, thinking that what I really needed was to have a filmmaker follow me around as I had all these like really emotionally intense discussions with members of my family and and then I don't know if that just got me following the camera a little bit more, but, you know, there's always like a certain amount of, you know, artificiality to, to these documentaries. Like it, it can go from where somebody's got a handheld camera following somebody around, but a lot of these sort of higher end things, like you see somebody open the door from the inside and let in the investigator or stuff like this. So they're always like setting up these scenes so that it looks natural, but you know that it's not. And for whatever reason, it just, it sort of seemed more obvious in this one. Like there's these situations where there's a, um, a scene at, uh, the cop, at a cop's house where he lets that investigator who they hire and he answers the door. The camera's already inside. He answers the door. They talk. And then the investigator and the cop go outside and they've obviously are still miked. And then the camera like opens the blinds a little bit and is shooting through the blinds at this conversation they're having. But there's no question that Nancy took that case file and gave it to her husband, and then he gave it to, to uh, what's his name, to Ron. There's no doubt in my mind whatsoever. You know, and Margie, yeah, she's lying her ass off. There's another scene where they're following a woman who's got this big box of stuff and is going to a hotel room, and she has to like kind of prop it up against the wall on a knee. And it's like trying to open the door, and I'm like... 
literally just like three people right there and they're just letting her do that yeah. rather than help her so that it look, so it helps the shot. So I just felt very uh, present to me in a way that it usually doesn't. Probably the most obvious one is when Stephen calls his father for the first time in years and there's a camera crew at his father's at his house place, yeah, and yeah. a camera crew with Stephen, right? So this is like, I just kept thinking about the logistics of this documentary. Like, it has the feel of a one camera following one person around thing, but it is not that. It is not that. It is a very sophisticated, like, multi-crew, and some and it had to be, like, in some ways storyboarded, but also they don't know what they're going to get. Like, this is... It's difficult to make this thing. They they had a scene. I, I I think I remember this correctly, where he's like walks through an office to get to a computer terminal, and instead of shooting it behind him, they shoot it from in front of him. So they they show him walking towards it. So you know they've already rehearsed it and done the walk, so the camera person knows where they're supposed to go, and that he's just following the camera people. And I I don't know for whatever reason that kind of stuck out to me. It's yeah. like this is like really like more staged than most documentaries or maybe I'm just noticing it more, but it, it, it certainly made an impression. I wouldn't necessarily say that that's rehearsed or staged. I mean, I worked with videographers who you let them go. They know how to get to where they need to go. They look and they'll move around and they'll set up for that shot. I know the shot you're talking about. I think it was going to the court clerk's office and was printing out some stuff and we get to see a nice 15 second shot of him working, as you said, but he's in there for, 15, 20 minutes in real life or whatever, the cameraman's got time to go around and like, no, that doesn't work for me. This works for me. There's 10 other angles that he got of him doing the same thing until he found the one that he liked. So just because it looks good and the lighting's great doesn't mean that it didn't happen organically when you're doing cinema verite stuff. But, you know, you got to say, well, if we're going to go out to wherever, wherever dad is, I don't know where he is, Alaska or wherever the hell he is, if we're going to send a camera there and we know that this is going to happen, let's try to coordinate these Oklahoma. two things. That would be Oklahoma. Okay. I don't know. I mean, I, I, you can't mess up with those shots at that gorgeous white countertop. Oh, I mean, that's no, my God. Steven's house. Like, like, what does he do for work? This is I'm off like, this, topic. Steven know, has but money. Yes. Steven yes. has like, yes. I'm sorry. This is completely off topic. But that extra, No, it's not. It's extra textual, but it's also textual, right? Yeah. Steven has money and his parents don't. Yeah. That, it's extra textual, but it's for me, it's also textual, right? Yes. His mother doesn't have money. His father doesn't have money. And at one point, his mother says to him, you were going to sue me and take my house. And he was like, it wasn't about the money, mom. And I'm like, no shit. It wasn't about the money, <laughs> Stephen, because he lives yeah. in one of the most gorgeous houses I've ever seen in a documentary. It looked like they rented a house from like Chip and Joanna or whatever to film this He's thing. He's like and- the bizarro Michael Peterson. He's, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and this is like the bizarro cross of Michael Peterson crossed on John Benet Ramsey. But nice. He's like Michael Peterson, but right. nice. He's driving a Porsche. He's got a Rolex. We we don't ever see what he does for work. We don't even get a hint at it. So super nice fiance slash wife who's very supportive uh-huh. of everything he does. He's basically dedicated his some portion of his life to finding out what happened to his sister. Obviously, he's been very successful in whatever's going on. You know what he could be doing for work? What's that? He could be running his own patreon oh well what a transition kevin yeah you could be like sure that's what he's doing he's like get all my mom dad hate content 
Yeah. And see, I'm, you know. I'm 100, I'm 100% certain that that's what Steven's doing. He's at the like, $15 level, you can yell at my mom, too. Yes, and you could hear us yell about this documentary. Actually, we're not yelling. I think we're all sort of talking about it in a very thoughtful way. We are. We are. So if you join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, you'll get all kinds of exclusive content, including the Crime Writers on After Show. This week, the four of us are going to be giving our summer recommendations. So whatever we want to talk about and recommend to folks, whether it's a, a podcast or a movie, a book. We can do a book? You do a book. Oh, good. I'm so glad. We're going to do some of that. People love that. Remember, you can uh, try us for seven days for free. So if you haven't you know, done that, you want to dip your toe in, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. All sorts of other great stuff. Toby Ball recently recorded his latest deep dive book club podcast. He was on the book Rogues. Toby, how did it go? Uh, it was good. It was a collection of essays by uh, Patrick Radden Keefe, who writes for The New Yorker. Uh, my guests were uh, the very handsome uh, Livy Burdett. Yay! And... Uh, <laughs> Sarah Carradine from Crime Scene and oh. Leah Satilli. And uh yeah, They're it was, it was a really handsome, Yeah, and, and it was a very uh is is a very interesting conversation. I think I actually our our opinions on the book varied a little bit. So I think it it didn't get contentious, but there were definitely like there was more different textures to it. I love it. I'm exactly. not just saying that because she's listening right now, but isn't Livy like so great and smart? Oh yeah, for a young yeah. person. I mean, she was. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, she was. She was in there with some uh, people who've got a lot of podcasting hours in. Mm. <laughs> did she mention over and over again she went to an Ivy League school? <laughs> no, no she I did. She didn't do that. Oh, you She's did. not that person. From, She's the from the Ivy League perspective, Olivia, yeah. how would you <laughs> characterize this essay? Um, I, I read it from the same book, but mine was more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> we also have the Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast, and we have our Married with podcast where Rebecca and I dish out relationship and life advice to people who Who's want to know. Who's more qualified than us? Who's more qualified from, uh, than us? In the next episode, uh, we will discuss uh, Suzanne's question. She wants to know how to stop being a people pleaser. Oh. Stop mm-hmm. asking the question so nicely. Oh. And lastly, just want to let folks know that uh, we are planning a meetup by we, I mean me, and my handsome daughter, Lily, when we're going to be in Dublin at the end of the month. We're asking folks that are Ireland-adjacent, I guess that includes Norway. That's, you know, adjacent, I guess, to some Or just extent. in Ireland. I don't know. The Vikings came over. We have tons it was a long of time listeners ago. in Ireland. Tons. We do. So we're going to be getting together uh, for a drink in Dublin on the last Friday of the month. Does Lily so, know about this, by the way? She does. She approves. She's being dragged along in a work trip. She approves. Oh, at least we can write the whole thing off, though. Remember right? when Teddy did this and we were in London? <laughs> yes. And then oh, we, we got, then we I had, remember that. We had the best time. We had the best time. He was so, like 15 and he got hammered. So if you want to know more information about that, just go to our Facebook group, which is called the, what is it called? The Facebook, the Crime Writers on Official. official Facebook Crime Writers on Discussion Group. Just go to our Crime Writers on Facebook page and join the group if you're nice, we'll let you in. Absolutely. All right, Kevin, does that end the business section? Thus ends the business section. All right, let's fade that music out right now. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Visit a live archaeological dig site on the very grounds where America began. Or walk the fields where our country was won. Live like a colonial by day or track 18th century ghosts by night. For all the history to be found here, there's plenty more to make for yourself. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Kevin? Yes? I have to ask you about The Note. The Note. I have thoughts about The Note. Okay. What are your thoughts about The Note? Oh, man, this is so great. It's so important and intriguing. It's funny, you know, we sometimes talk about a MacGuffin, and for those who hear us talk about it but don't know exactly what we're referring, a MacGuffin is an item, a device, a plan, it's any sort of thing in a, in a movie or a show that propels the action, but in and of itself, in the end, isn't very important. It'd be like, you know, The Secret's Rebel Plans or The Maltese Falcon, right? It's, all, it's really all about the whole rest of the the action. And so the letter is kind of like that. For those who haven't watched it, do you want to just explain what the letter is? So when Jennifer disappeared, uh, that night a letter was found on her bed and it was written apparently by somebody with their non-dominant hand. And it starts off by saying, uh, Jennifer is with me and I am like a father figure to her and she's fine. Your daughter is with me. She is fine. She is having some problems though. She needs some time away from this place. Three to five days max. She is like a daughter to me, and I'm like a dad to her. Here are some of Jennifer's quotes. I'm fine. I just need time to think. So it's actually the only clue that we actually have, because we don't have a body or fingerprints or anything really like that. And it's right out of John Benet Ramsey, right? When you you have to, you know, look at it and think, well, who would have written this and to what purpose? Mm-hmm. And the only purpose really is to delay and misdirect. And it continues to do maybe. that. I don't know. I have a theory about this that's completely different than anything that the documentary posits. Oh, so, all right, you do. You it. mean you're going to go with? The, well, it did remind me. I did see a lot of parallels to like the Jean Benet thing, and that it's like this mystery that we're we're always wondering about, and it was always like, was it somebody close in the family that was responsible? And just the you know the way that people are still consumed by it, although. Remember that documentary we watched about that with that like bizarre fake cereal in their fake house? And the pineapple. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the fake pineapple. So stupid. None of that here. But the reenactments here were kind of weird. I really liked the use of reenactments in this documentary. Oh my God, I thought it was horrible. (laughs) No, I only liked it. It was odd. I didn't like them because I think they were good. I liked them because they were sparing and because they didn't like, they only like, listen, I didn't think the reenactments were actually good in and of themselves. I liked I liked when they used them and I liked how infrequently they used them. And I don't know, there was something about the way, especially the ways at the end. I, I don't I don't I think they could have been worse, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I thought the parts really? where they had Jennifer, the Jennifer character sort of read her poetry, or whatever, maybe turn to camera. That's stylized. That's fine. It might work. It might not work. 
but like you said, to have the reenactments and then dialogue, like what the hell? <laughs> what was it like? The fit the actor dad says like when he gets called, oh what the hell now? You know something that I didn't like, like that. Yeah, that I didn't, I didn't I, like that part. And Toby's right to have it mirror back and forth. I was thinking, is this is this Radio Lab? Yeah, and and it's. I, I don't know. Can we talk about the very last scene or do you want to yeah, wait till the end? Yeah, I was going to say that at the end where she's like peering out the window. Yeah, I don't Ooh. like that one. Well, and, and what's crazy about that is that she's peering out the window as headlights pull into their driveway when the entire time one of the main things is nobody could have driven in there because they had to get past the gate. So it couldn't have been a stranger but coming into the driveway. But how do we know someone didn't get past the gate? We never hear that someone didn't get past the gate. We never hear that some security guard said that didn't happen. Right. So, but <laughs> if you're going to show that as the right. last thing, right. you got to like tease it a little bit that right. that was a possibility. Right. But um, do we ever hear any evidence that the security guard said someone didn't come in that night? Do we ever hear that in the documentary? I, no. I don't think so. There's, there's a lot of, sh- there's we a lot of shit we don't hear. We never hear. Yeah. But you know why we never hear that? Because the parents didn't fucking report her missing the next day. You know, we well, they don't thought have... she ran away, right? I mean, is there is there any reason why we don't think she ran away? I think she ran away. Yeah, That's I think she never came back. My opinion at, at, the, is, at the end of the day, I was just like, my opinion is, I'm going to be real. She ran away, and she probably died after she ran away because when people, young people, run away, they fall into a life that sometimes leads them into a situation where they die drugs prostitution dying i think the evidence against that was that she left like her contact lenses and like other things that one would assume one would assume she doesn't she, she leave all of her contact i mean you but don't guys, know. you know what the evidence that we don't have the luds from the home telephone yeah if, if apparently there was an argument and then she called somebody well who did she call? Yeah. That we would also, be, be a record. We also don't know. And there was this whole assumption that no one drove in. And I was like, that's a bullshit assumption. Because that assumes that the parents had, like, if the parents had, for instance, reported her missing the next day, they would have asked the guard gate the next day, did anyone come in that night? And they would have said, no, no one came in that night. The parents didn't report her missing. So we don't know that no one drove in that night. We don't you know, know. You could even, they could have even called, called into the house and she's on the line. She's just call waiting. And it's like, yeah, send them in. And then right. mm-hmm. gets back on the thing and nobody ever knows. But I don't know. It just seemed like a weird way to end it. Although I, I realized yeah. I'm going back to yeah. is like by, is by sort of demonstrating something that you've sort of, I don't know if they've established it, but they've certainly like talked about how that was not one of the possibilities. And that's the final thing. So, so, you, Rebecca, so, one thing. so Rebecca, we're doing the thing the documentary Rebecca, isn't Rebecca, about. Rebecca, we're just guessing what happened. Yeah. <laughs> Rebecca, can I ask you one thing though? Sure. If you, if you were well, on the theory that she ran away by herself, why would she write a note in that manner? Because 15 year olds are fucking stupid. 15 year olds are fucking. Then would you stupid. eliminate the possibility she ran away by herself because of the letter? It doesn't matter if she ran away by herself or not. I, someone, I think maybe she wrote the letter. Did anyone ever posit whether or not she wrote the letter? So it was like her mom. Well, it dad. could have been the guy, what's his name, that his handwriting was quite similar. Literally. Jenny, by the way, Jenny. literally everyone's like someone close to her who had to have known her wrote the letter. I'm like, you know who knew her? She knew her. She knew her fucking self. Yeah, if you take it at face value, it's like, she didn't take her stuff because she's going to be back in three days. Exactly. Then why would she write that note that way in that? To scare her parents. To scare her parents. To I'm going to write her, with my left hand. To scare her parents. Okay. Okay. I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's 
it like seems the family weird. dynamics don't seem yeah. that awesome. We also got a lot of information that she had like mental health stuff going on. Listen, the information here is nuts. And we are doing the thing that the documentary invites us not to do, which is to analyze what actually happened in the case, because that is not what the documentary is about. But <laughs> and this is like this is the whole point. So this is the question I have, Toby, because the, the documentary does these dual things where it debunks a bunch of bullshit science like uh, lie detectors, like all the stuff they did back then. But then they bring in like a person who can do like truth detecting through questioning. That was the most absurd thing. So she starts off by doing it on a transcript. Yeah. She's like, oh, well, she said didn't instead of did not. And that indicates that she's telling the truth. And then when they're actually interviewing the mom, she looks right at the camera and says did not. And then that same truth analyst or whatever it's like, oh, yeah, truth she's definitely telling the truth. I'm like, oh my God. She's a truth teller. I'm like, she just literally did the thing that you said was a tell yeah. for lying in front of the camera. And you're now saying she's telling the truth. So I don't know where to go with that. She yeah, also I mean, has a stick that she can find water. Exactly. Pointing to the yes. ground. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be a truth teller. And you can just come in and I'll just sit there and I'll be like. Bullshit. Yeah, I don't bullshit. believe. I think that whole thing. But is they, bullshit. they have the straight royal flush of all the crazy forensics. They've got polygraphs. They got cadaver dogs. They got interrogators who are going to parse out the words. Polygraphs. Uh, the profiler. And for fuck's sake, a handwriting analyst. Someone looking at the penmanship of someone's non-dominant hand. Yeah. So of regression course, Stephen hypnosis. Would, they have regression hypnosis. hypnosis. Uh, of course, Stephen would be certain you, his parents are involved. Not even on a couch in that hypnosis. Dogs? How how could you be hypnotized in that chair? Don't not debunk cadaver dogs, but debunk <laughs> cadaver dogs that actually they do find cadavers sometimes. Sometimes, but they're not. <laughs> no, but they also will hit on other things. I mean, we've seen yes. this before, yes. where like they try to certify a cadaver dog, and the person who does it is like, "No, I put a fucking squirrel there and hit on that, <laughs> and that's why yeah. your dog doesn't pass." <laughs> yeah, all of these cadaver dogs do. We got a lot of great footage of them running in slow motion. Yeah. Though. By the way, does anybody think that like when they shot the reenactments, they went back to that guy's house and did it in the actual bedroom? Because it looks like that, right? Wait, which reenactments? All of the Jennifer and her room. Yeah, the kid. The kid. I think well, it's the four post they did bed. get into the house. They did. But yeah, I feel like the old guy came out. Yeah, over the past, the next eight years, he like, they sweet talked the guy and said, okay. do you think we could? We have to like talk about that Someone scene. knows something. Oh, that's exactly what I said, Laura. <laughs> it's like someone knows something, except I liked it. That is literally exactly what I said. Before we started taping this, Kevin came home and I was like, this documentary is like someone knows something, except I liked it. <laughs> So they went, this Stephen went back to drove in front of his childhood home. Right. And he's standing out front with filmmakers like a weirdo. Right. Mm-hmm. Imagine you did that. The owner comes outside and he's like, what the fuck are you doing in front of my house? And he's like, I used to live here. Now, keep in mind, it's not just Stephen. If you walked in front of your childhood home and said, I used to live here, the homeowner would be like, oh, hi, do you want to come in? He's standing there with a documentary crew. So, of course, the dude's like, that's weird. Remember, do you know that someone like disappeared from here? And he's like, yeah, that was my sister. Even weirder. The yeah. guy lets him in. And yeah. then they have this whole conversation where it's like, wait, why was your sister sleeping in the main bedroom on the first floor? I know. Like, that that was weird. <laughs> it ended up turning into this like, weird HGTV tour of the murder house. <laughs> she had the master. It was, I mean, I do, I do love Williamsburg. I will say I do love Williamsburg. 
It was like the, yeah. the scene setting in this was incredible. I will say mm-hmm. like the atmosphere, the scene setting, yeah. the gated community. It was it was beautifully shot. Can we talk about the alternate suspect? Tony? Tony. Yeah. And his friend Charlie. Tony's wife, who was the high school girlfriend that broke yeah. up with. Yeah. They're still together. And then got back together. together. And after Jennifer was taunting them, following them around in the hallways and looking in their what classrooms. What are the chances they would still be together after all these years? I don't know. I don't think that that's. That's slim. That's a slim high chance. sweethearts. No, that's I know, a slim I know chance. people from my high school that. I am not back together. I'm not still together with the person I was dating when well, I was 16. I didn't say, didn't say the, the odds. Not are, not the odds are greater <laughs> than zero. So. <laughs> It happens. You know what the odds are pretty Doesn't long always on? Happen. Teenage Tony, like killing somebody and then putting him in a barrel, covering it with acid, <laughs> and then rolling that barrel without any acid coming out. That's, you know, 55-gallon drum now weighs 440 pounds, yeah. filled with acid in a body, and then just rolling it into his car and making advantage either by himself or with his one-armed friend. Yes. You know what the odds are extra long on? What? Tony having done it and then doing any interviews with a documentary crew about the murder of his high school girlfriend. Like if he did it and 30 years later, a documentary crew approaches him and they're like, Hey, we're doing a documentary about the murder of your high school ex-girlfriend. Do you want to be in it? If you actually did it, you'd be like, Nope, <laughs> not going to do that. Too painful these, for me. These side characters were so interesting because they all were like, I mean, you've got the guy that was supposed to help him. The guy has got like his MAGA hat and he's like out there and he's like, yeah, he wants to know how to dispose of a corpse. He had one arm, Laura. Yeah, I know. The one armed man. I mean, it's like freaking Twin Peaks. And then you've got like the old guy who's got the criminal record, who was like the creepy babysitter guy. But I'm like, okay, like, let's dig into these people a little bit more. It's incredible. This is all in Williamsburg of all places. I know. My (laughs) favorite place. I got to go back to Williamsburg. You know how much I love those colonial reenactors. Maybe the one-armed man is like some general or something. And then you go to Oklahoma and you go to dad's house and he's supposed to be the worst villain you've ever met. And he seems fine. Like, I'm sorry. I know. I believe that he was horrible. I do. I believe. I believe abuse victims. I 100% believe them. But he's living in a house full of tchotchkes with his like lovely wife. And I am expecting the worst villain in the world. Especially when you already think he's the killer. Yes. And literally yeah. the cop is like, he's going to try to try to control the interview. It's going to be real hard. Mm-hmm. They sit down with him and he's like, just so you know, I'm no bullshit. I'm be whatever. And you're like, oh, he's doing it. It's going to be real bad. And then he's like fine <laughs> like he's just like sitting yeah. with his tchotchkes yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well it's easier it's, being a bad guy when you didn't do that particular thing yeah you know <laughs> he told people at a wedding like no jennifer's just away for the yeah. past seven years somebody knows something yeah at the end it's like like i i'm all for like giving people breaks on their behavior when tragedy befalls them mm-hmm but seven years later, telling people at a wedding that your daughter is actually off on a trip. Yeah. Uh, when she's been missing for seven years. That guy's years, messed up. I'm not saying he's not messed up because he has tragedies. Yes. That denial? I don't know. I have a question. Yeah. If somebody went to any of your parents' houses, mm-hmm. would any of your parents have a shoebox full of letters, love letters that you and your high school friends or paramours wrote to one another? Would, no, because I took it with me. Would, but seriously, the doc, the mother has 
a, bo- a Puma oh. box full of correspondence. Yeah, of course he, because she left it. It wasn't yeah, like these were I mean, Stephen's notes and his love letters and he took them with him. She she died or disappeared when she's 15, But she 16. doesn't live in the same house anymore. Well, you t- But can well, you imagine throwing them out if that's like the most yeah. recent thing that she has? Like that that's her document of her daughter like but, at the age she was right before she went yeah. missing? But that's she never but she never read that. Like it's but it's, it's almost strange. as if she's I've got all kinds of shit like that that I I have. I don't look at it, but I know that someday I might. Really? Like some some like paper I wrote when I was a freshman in college. It's in a bo- it's in a box up in my called attic. A basement or an attic. I yeah. have I have those in my basement. I downsized a lot when I moved, but I do have some like random papers. It'd be a pretty um, short fucking documentary if she didn't do that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I just feel like these are things that should have been looked at at the time that Jennifer went missing. No shit. No fucking shit. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, hello. Like those letters had a lot. Like, I mean, there was clearly a lot happening in that relationship. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. The police did. I mean, uh, whatever. Go ahead, Toby. I think he's better looking and as an adult, too. But that's just me. Who? That boyfriend. Tony. Tony. Yeah. I, I didn't see again, why they were like, again, all the girls loved him. Early, early 80s were not not good times for anybody. <laughs> in the <Lux> department. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, this is, this isn't really here or there. I couldn't, I, I just, I just wonder if this is intentional. Did you guys catch, there's a scene when they're talking about the whole, how, uh, Jennifer had sort of maintained a relationship with Tony, even though she was dating yeah, whatever her name was. Yeah. And they're walking down the hallway and he's got his like arm around her and he like does the turn just like that meme that was all over the place <laughs> Yes, with, yeah. I mean, it was like exactly the, there's like, you could have freeze framed that exact meme where he's got his arm around one girl and is checking out the other girl who yes. walks by. He saw that, that was five music videos on MTV. Yeah. You know? I thought that was pretty, I, I didn't know if that was intentional or not, but it, if it, if it was, it was pretty funny. Jesse is a friend <laughs> and, and not a very, uh, not a very funny movie, but yeah. uh, all right. So just before we wrap up, I, I've already stated my theory. I think that Jennifer, probably went away of her own accord and then fell upon hard times and probably met a bad end. Anybody else have any theories about what happened to Jennifer besides what I've thrown out there? Obviously that I also don't think that's what this documentary is actually about. Does anyone else want to throw out foul play foul play from from her room foul play? It might not have happened in her room. No, but like it came, but it went from her room, like from her room. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, after dad and they had the argument, it was, she made a call and yeah. I don't know. They didn't mm. have the phone records. They didn't, they didn't pull the LUDs. Where are the LUDs? I, I, I hate like speculating about what the reality of something is based on a documentary. But yeah. uh, I, I do think that the the thing that they don't talk about, which seemed to me like the easiest possible solution to the whole thing, is that she thought she was running away with somebody for a few days mm-hmm. and they had something else in mind. Right. Right. Um, uh-huh. That seemed like that kind of covers all the- I don't disagree. All the bases- and when they went and interviewed that former babysitting guy, they kind of left that dangling Chad out there. Yeah. Yeah. The one who used to buy him all booze. Yeah. The one who tried to attack someone and she saved herself by rebuking him. Rebuking in the name- him. I rebuke you in the name of <laughs> yes. Joe. What did she say? He grabbed me because mm-hmm. I said, get in the car. So I kicked him in the um, privates and pointed to him and I said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and I command you to leave me alone now. The next time someone comes at me with anything, that's I want to make that my ringtone. 
Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. March is National Kidney Month. People diagnosed with kidney disease need a game plan. At Fresenius Kidney Care, you have access to a kidney coach to help you understand kidney disease and learn about treatment options. If you want to learn how to protect your kidney health and feel your best, connect with a kidney coach today. Learn more at protectkidneyhealth.com. That's protectkidneyhealth.com. All right, let's do Ouija. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Burden of Proof on HBO and Max? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Burden of Proof? Yeah, this is a thumbs up. Um, it's definitely, as as Toby pointed out, this is not a fast-paced documentary. This is um, the type of story that you're following along as it happens, much like as you follow along in like The Staircase or something like that, where it's filmed in real time over a long period of time following a particular issue. You know, I think this this case is particularly fascinating because it's unsolved. But what is really interesting is that this is really kind of a portrait of grief on behalf of Stephen, the brother who is, you know, the focus of this documentary and also of his family dynamics and sort of the role that those family dynamics have played and how he continues to look at this case and investigate this case and seek answers in his sister's disappearance. They've got a lot of really interesting people there. The fact that they filmed this over eight years and kept going means it's extremely thorough. At times, I did feel it was a little exhausting because I was like, oh my God, eight years. But I, you know, I think it's a really interesting story. And so I would give it a watch. Toby Ball. Yeah, I'm a thumbs up too. Actually, I, you know, despite everything I said during the main review, I actually, <laughs> I actually really liked it. Um, yeah, like Laura said, it, it's not super fast paced. And I would just say to people, you know, stick with it. It does pay off. Um, I think, you know, it, th- there's a lot going on here. And, and part of it is it's family trauma and like what the effects of that are. And this isn't like a sort of common or, uh, something that that probably happens a lot as far as family trauma goes, but it's just sort of an interesting impact that happens when you have an unhappy and and perhaps abusive family. So anyway, yeah, I I, I thought this was actually was was good. So I'd give it a, a thumbs up. Kevin Flynn. I'm also a thumbs up. I think this could have been, you know, four episodes could have been three. Yeah. I suppose you could tighten it up, but I didn't mind how it's, how it, you know, rolled out. Yeah. The, the pace is uh, deliberate, but not, to the point where it loses momentum. It's also the kind of thing, if you want to sit on the couch and play your property brother's game or crush all the candy while you're, while it's going along, you, you probably won't miss too much. I will say like everyone else that while there is a disappearance at the center of it, 
Jennifer isn't really the center of this documentary. It's Stephen and his quest. And also, you know, not just the effects of what happens to look at a crime, but how that and his actions affect his relationships with other people. And if you, when you get to the final conclusion where at least, you know, it means certain things for certain family members, yeah, you have to start thinking about what all those past years uh, meant and what they, what was gained and what was lost because of this effort. So anyway, I thought it was really, really good. It's a thumbs up. Yeah, I freaking loved this documentary. It's slow as hell, but like Kevin said, it's deliberately slow because this is a documentary about a man whose adult life has been shaped by a belief, like a strong ass belief. And one thing we didn't talk about in the main review that I want to mention is that belief is shaped by something that a cop said. It's by a police report. And it is very interesting. And that's just like an element of this that like comes out really, really strongly in the end. That is fascinating to me. I just think the family dynamics are fascinating. The look into this man's quest is fascinating. And the pacing makes sense when you get to the end in a way that it doesn't make sense at the beginning. This to me is sort of like the mirror image of murder on Middle Beach where a man, a young man is trying to solve his own mother's murder, but he's doing it himself. This is somebody who's trying to basically solve his own sister's disappearance, but he's basically with filmmakers trying to do it and feels very much on the outside. I don't know. It's weird as hell, this documentary. And the weirdness of it is one of the reasons why it's so great. And uh, I finished watching it and still had a million questions which is a sign of a great documentary in many ways. So yeah, big thumbs up for me for Burden of Proof. And no one's more surprised than me because when I started watching it, I was like, what the hell am I watching? <laughs> so yeah, I really, really liked it. Big thumbs up. All right. So now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime of the crime week. Crime of the week! A company in China has fired a worker for spending up to six hours a day in the bathroom. The Laodong Daily Newspaper reports the dismissed employee says his recent anorectal surgery left him with ongoing pain and other challenges. The firm terminated him for tardiness, absences, and leaving work early. The man sued the company to get his job back. A judge ruled against him, saying the bathroom breaks were, quote, not within reasonable and normal physiological needs. Panel, that's a long time to sit around. What was this worker actually doing in the bathroom for six hours a day? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Um, I'm just going to channel if it was Kevin Flynn. He's in there playing Best Fiends. Yeah. What do you think, Toby? What was this worker doing for six hours in the bathroom? See, sort of in that same vein, my only experience with this kind of thing was uh, when Jake was probably in like fourth grade and he had a friend come and spend the weekend up with us at, at our island place. And he would disappear into the bathroom for, you know, a long period of time, like half an hour, which is like actually kind of a long period of time. And then you go in and check. And it's just because he's playing this Game Boy. What do you think, Kevin? Well, I was thinking, he, you know, he was doing a crossword puzzle or a jigsaw puzzle. But I'm thinking now he might be writing all those little sayings for fortune cookies and then going on the toilet. Oh, you know, right. It- I, it's only you know one how you thing. take it and then you have, to have you add on the toilet? Yeah, That's yeah, true. Yeah, I think he was like road testing huh, those. That's true. There's only one thing he could have been doing that would take that long, though. What? 
listening to Scamanda. I, you know, I thought that. <laughs> I thought that, yes. I mean, it takes that forever. That was going to be one of mine, yes. It takes forever to listen to Scamanda, oh, does it man. not? It does. All right, that's going to do it for us. Laura Bricker, folks want to reach out to you and ask you why you spent such a long time in the bathroom. How can they find you on social media? Uh, they can find all of my beauty tips for things that I do in the bathroom in the morning at Laura Bricker on Twitter. Toby Ball, how can folks find you on social media? At Toby Ball and H. Kevin Flynn, what about you? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. If you want to follow me anywhere, find me at Reb Lavoy. Follow the show at Crime Writers On and please join our incredible community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook group. Not the page, the group. It's awesome. Get episodes early and ad-free at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You get all the stuff we make there. We make many, many podcasts. You get the show early ad-free. It is worth it. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our editor is the incredible Livy Burdett. The executive producer of this show is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the Treehouse Yoga Studio above the Mockingbird Cafe in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio, otherwise known as Studio C, The Closet, in our New Hampshire basement, where our teenagers also call us by our first names when we interrupt their phone calls. Rebecca. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you. Later. Later. How far will he go to prove his parents killed her and then covered it up? We will discuss. Joining me to get that done and okay. more. Obviously, I forgot to add that. We will discuss. I left that. <laughs> Can I just leave that? No. Okay. No. <laughs> March is National Kidney Month. People diagnosed with kidney disease need a game plan. At Fresenius Kidney Care, you have access to a kidney coach to help you understand kidney disease and learn about treatment options. If you want to learn how to protect your kidney health and feel your best, connect with a kidney coach today. Learn more at protectkidneyhealth.com. That's protectkidneyhealth.com.